0: Thank you. As uh, Rabbi Willick mentioned, it seems to have been my uh, destiny to alert the Jewish community to things that it does not want to know. Yes, the first thing was the problem of alcoholism. You know, for generations we knew that Shiker is a goy, and here comes a guy who says that alcoholism is the Jewish problem. And the problem of drug addiction. And after that, I had to alert the community to the fact that everybody thinks that the Jewish husband is the ideal husband. And there's no problem of domestic violence in the Jewish community. So I had to expose that. And one of the rewards that I got for that was that on two lectures, I had to have police protection because of death threats. And now, the time has come for me to deal with another problem. The problem of compulsive gambling, which has become essentially an epidemic problem. You know, when I pick up the telephone, and it's a crying person, usually very often a woman crying, Give out, Please help! I know it's coming. It's a gambling problem. Legal gambling is, brings in 300 billion dollars a year. For every single dollar of legal gambling, there's four dollars of illegal gambling. Meaning that the gambling industry is one and a half trillion dollars a year. Far exceeds the automotive industry, the entertainment industry, the health industry. And Jews are not immune. As the rabbi mentioned, the greatest increase has been in youngsters and in senior citizens. Senior citizens finding themselves with nothing to do, finding themselves at the way to the casino if they can make it, and they lose their social security checks. One call was, I don't think I can handle it anymore. We're penniless. And I and my three children are going to be evicted from our apartment. I'm tired of schlepping him to doctors. They do no good. Another call was from a member of a prominent Jewish family. In order to avoid a Hillel Hashem scandal, he paid off thousands of dollars of his son's gambling-induced debts. Now his son says that he has to have four forty thousand dollars immediately because the mob is threatening that if he doesn't pay him $40,000, they'll break his legs. What do I do? I said, the first thing you do is you don't give him $40,000. Get to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous, and there you will find people who have gone through the university of experience who know what to do in such a situation, and you'll be guided by them. Did I tell you he didn't listen? And two years later, the call came from his sister that he he has to have immediately $60,000. The father is broke because he mortgaged this house to pay off the $40,000. He doesn't have anything left to mortgage. And so I told the sister, well, what you might do is sell your jewelry, empty the children's savings, mortgage the house, Give him the money so he continues to gamble, probably blow it all in one night. And then he'll come back asking you for a hundred thousand dollars. You see, a compulsive gambler, we have to understand this. A compulsive gambler, like any other addict, cannot help himself. Right? He is hooked, and as was said before, he is a slave to the gambling. Schlepping him to psychiatrist and psychologist does no good. Unless the psychiatrist or psychologist happens to be expert in addiction and gambling. Medication is the no, of, uh, of, uh, no effect. And in order to prevent self-destruction and the ruination of the entire family, the person must be guided by people who have proven competence in this field. Now, some people think they have the answers. And one wife felt that she really had the answer, because here's what she did. She transferred the title of the house to her name. He couldn't mortgage it. She put all the bank accounts and the CDs in her name, so he has no access to it. Well, that should take care of it, right? He took his wife's ID, paid a woman $100 to go to the bank and impersonate his wife, took out every cent that there was and blew it all home remedies don't work now in addiction there is a uh, principle that an addict does not change unless she or he has to change meaning things have gotten so bad that they feel they have to do something you see No addict has access to logic. An addict is not driven by logic, he's driven by his addiction. He must have the drink, he must have the bet, he must have the fix. He must have it. Let me tell you that I understand it. The fact that it might be illegal makes no difference. Whom he is hurting makes no difference. Many years ago, I had an an attack of acute asthma and I was choking. I couldn't breathe. My, I felt my life was at stake. Fortunately, there was a nebulizer there. Okay. So I took the nebulizer and I gave him a couple of squirts and okay, I was able to breathe. What do you think would have happened at a time when I couldn't breathe if somebody told me, you touch that nebulizer, you're going to go to jail? I couldn't care less. I had to breathe. Now, that's what the addict feels like. You can't threaten him with jail, you can't threaten him with the wife leaving, you can't threaten him losing the family, you can't threaten him with anything. He has to have the drink, the fix, or the bet. Now, if things get so bad that he feels the world's crushing in on him, then he may give up and accept treatment. But The problem is that sometimes well-meaning people like this person's father, took away those very things that could crush him. So that if you bail out a gambler, or you get him an attorney to keep him out of jail, or you do anything to minimize the consequences that he brought upon himself with the gambling, then you are essentially contributing to the problem. And it's hard to get the families to accept that. The book that I just wrote is going to probably be out in another several months. And there's a number of stories there, quite typical stories from the entire gamut, entire spectrum of observant Jews, non-observant Jews, Haredi, uh, assimilated. They're all there. And the story is the same. I see compulsive trembling as a kind of a behavioral cancer. You the problem with cancer is that it begins as a something with no symptoms. No one knows that they have it. And unfortunately by the time it has grown far enough to give symptoms it's a, in a very serious stage radical treatment may be necessary. And It's important to know that just like an alcoholic who's been sober for 12 years if he takes one drink he loses control and he'll drink himself to death. We have to know the same thing about a compulsive gambler. Next week a lot of us are going to be playing Hanukkah dreidel. No problem with it, right? if a person is a compulsive gambler he does not dare touch the dreidel you say oh yeah so what it's going to be five cents that's not the issue he is allergic to the dreidel He's allergic to the to anything that he can cause him to win I'm not a compulsive gambler and by the way as the Reverend pointed out Years ago, there wasn't one state that had illegal, illegal gambling. Casinos were illegal. Today, almost every state has the lottery, and casinos are legal. So that has certainly increased the exposure. Well, I wouldn't have known where to find a booking for my, to save my life. But you walk out of the supermarket, and they're selling tickets, and for a dollar you can win 83 million. Well, you'd be nuts enough to do it. So every once in a while i buy a ticket I've won three dollars in, in fifteen years <laughs> I didn't spend that much either but one time the answer I got the better the better of me and I bought a scratch off ticket for a dollar now the guy who sells these tickets is in GA he's a compulsive gambler in recovery and so I scratch it off and I say hey I got a winner I got $2. So he looks at it and he says, Yeah, Doc, you got $2. What do you want? I said, What do you mean what I want? I want $2. He says, Don't you want two tickets? I said, No. <laughs> Don't you want a dollar and one ticket? I said, No, I want $2. So he gave me the $2 and he says, You see, Doc, that's why you can and I can't. If I win two, I bet 20 right? And that's the nature of the compulsive gambler. Now, if anybody is concerned about gambling, in a friend, a relative, whatever, do yourself a favor, look up the number of gammonon family groups. These are family members, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, parents, of people who have a gam- compulsive gambling problem. If you want, I'll give you the number, 877-664-2469, but you can look it up in the telephone with on, And somebody will call you and put you in touch with people who can tell you the true facts about gambling and what to do and what not to do. The incidence among Jews is exceedingly high. In some GA groups, 30% are Jews. Down in Florida, 90%. Now, I use the term compulsive gambling, I use the term addictive gambling, they're the same thing. And one, we have to know that an addict can never be cured. His addiction can be arrested. And on the way here, I listened to a tape from a friend of mine, who last month celebrated 30 years since he made his last gamble, his last bet. And one of the things he says on the tape is I lost a lot of money during those 30 years but what really hurts the most is I lost 30 years of my life. And he knows very well that he dare not gamble at all and he won't play dreidel on Hanukkah. Now, there are different types of gamblers just like there are different types of drinkers. You know, if you make Kiddush and you have a Lachayim that does not make you an alcoholic. And if somebody buys an occasional lottery ticket, or plays Hanukkah dreidel, that does not make them a compulsive gambler. But there's a person who, more than just an occasional achayim, becomes a more regular drinker. Now nothing has happened to him yet, but he just drinks a little more. He's on the road, perhaps, to becoming an alcoholic, but he's not there yet. And so we have some people who gamble a little more than they should, but they will never gamble away the money that's crucial for their family. So they'll put away, okay, I've got thousand dollars that I'm going to play around with. If I win, I win. If I lose, I lose. At that point, I don't... Uh, advocated, but that is not yet compulsive gambling. There are people who go into a casino occasionally and have a great time, and so they win a few bucks, they lose a few bucks, and they're not drawn back to the casino, like an alcoholic is drawn to alcohol, like a heroin addict is drawn to heroin. Some of that is escapist. They need an escape for a little while, so they escape into the casino. <laughs> but as long as they can stay away and they're not it doesn't draw them back, and it's not compulsive, they, they don't become addictive. One of the things to know about the compulsive gambler is that inasmuch as it is a compulsion, you know what a compulsion is like? You don't have any control. You have to do what the compulsion is. I'll give you an example of that. When I was a, in training... I had a medical student assigned to me for six weeks to learn something about psychiatry and we got to a discussion about hypnosis and uh, he said to me well what's hypnosis like I said the only way you'll find out is if you'd be hypnotized because otherwise there's those kinds of weird ideas what hypnosis is like so he said well will you hypnotize me I said okay So, I hypnotized him, and he was a pretty good subject. And I showed him the various things, the various phenomena that can be done with hypnosis. I don't want to go into the details, but many things can be done with hypnosis. And then I decided on one time, I'm going to show him what a post-hypnotic suggestion is like. So while he was in a trance, I said to him, After you wake up from the trance, I'm going to give you a signal that I'm going to stroke my beard and when I do that you will get up and take the chair that you're sitting on and put it on my desk you will not remember that I gave you this suggestion ok a typical post-hypnotic suggestion ok then we'll come up from the trance and we talked a little bit and just you know I go like this After a few moments, he says, there's something crazy going on. I said, why? I got this urge that I got to pick up my chair and put it on your desk. I said, why would you want to do that? I don't know. But it's a weird feeling. I said, well... So you got a weird feeling. Did you tell me that under hypnosis? I said, yes. (laughs) Well, how come I don't remember it? I said, because I gave you the suggestion that you would not remember it. Oh, okay. I understand. Then I don't have to do it. I said, maybe not. Well, we finished the session. And he left. And 15 minutes later, slams the door open, picks up the chair, gives it a zest on the table, and he says, damn you anyway. (laughs) That's the force of compulsion. And that's what the addict is like. He can't resist it. I'm not saying he can't resist it. If, if nothing is impossible. But normally, with the normal amount of energy it can't be done. The addict, the compulsive gambler, brings great ruin to himself and his family. He embezzles, he steals. Oh, by the way, kids are stealing from their parents. Young men and young women are stealing from their parents to play cards and play poker on the internet or even in some of the rooms of the yeshivas. And uh, some of the kids already owe thousands of dollars. And they may have, they steal the parents' credit cards and parents can't believe that this is what's happening and you know something if you don't want to believe something is happening you don't believe it I was told by some people who managed to escape during the Holocaust to escape from Poland into Romania where until 1944 the Holocaust didn't hit and they came and they told about what was happening back in Poland and nobody believed them it was too horrible To accept. So there's some things that if we don't want to accept, we don't accept. And this is why I had such a difficult time telling people that Jews have a problem of alcohol and drugs and spouse abuse because nobody wanted to believe it. And nobody wanted to believe that their child may be stealing from them. Nobody may want to believe that their husband is embezzling money from the business. All of the books that I've written are on one theme, and that is that beneath every psychological problem, there's a problem of low self-esteem, of people feeling inadequate and inferior without justified reason. We are all better people than we give ourselves credit for being. And this is true of gambling as well. In the words of a gambler, I felt very low about myself. I thought I had never amounted to anything. I had no self-worth. I was desperate in wanting to be liked by others. In fact, I wanted to be liked by everyone. But I felt there was nothing about me that anyone would like. But if I wore expensive clothes and drove a luxury automobile, people would look up to me and want to be my friends. When I wanted gambling, others would look at me enviously and they'd say, there's a person who knows what he's doing. And for him, that was the drive that got him into gambling. Some of the gamblers are very, very bright. Some are running very successful businesses. They can make judgments ten years ahead about their business. When it comes to gambling, they can't make a judgment for more than the next five minutes. They have the urge and they have to do it now. And it's interesting, we have a, there is a theory that in our brain there's some section there that is called the pleasure center. And that it can be triggered probably by dopamine, which is one of the neurohormones. And various things can trigger it. In one person, alcohol is the trigger. And because he has this sensation, he wants to repeat it and another person it's food another person it's cigarettes another person it's sex another person it's money another person it's COVID and an anorexic a young woman can be weighing 68 pounds and sits in front of the mirror and she looks like she came out of a concentration camp and she needs to lose another half a pound because then she gets the rush and she gets the endorphin release and probably that's what happens with gambling which means that it makes no difference whether the gambler wins or loses. It's the gambling that sets off that, that, the, the trigger to uh, uh, trigger the pleasure center. So, uh, even though the person may have been successful, even though the person may have a, a status in the community, the little self-esteem will drive them to Get money, get recognition, and then he totally loses control of it. Now, the problem with our adolescence is a very serious one, because adolescents are risk takers. Uh, now, the person who bungee jumps at age sixteen. May not continue bungee jumping when he's 50. But an adolescent who gambles when he's 16 is very likely to gamble to age 50 if he reaches that age. Oh, by the way, after the casinos opened in Atlantic City, now listen to this. After the casinos opened, the area within 35 miles of Atlantic City had a 100 percent increase in suicide, and there was only one reason for that. It was the compulsive gambler who became so desperate that he saw no way out for himself. And the incidence of suicide among compulsive gamblers is extremely high. And I'd like to read you a little story that my friend Arnie told me. I'm a, compulsive, I'm a recovering compulsive gambler who placed my last bet on April 10, 1968. I started gambling at about age 7 or 8 as a kid in Brooklyn. It started with flipping baseball cards, pitching pennies, shooting marbles, and playing pinball machines. That kind of gambling continued until about age 14. At that point, I started to bet on sporting events with a bookmaker, and I got into the stock market. As a young kid growing up, I always felt that everyone was better than me. The only time I felt okay about myself was after I had a win, whether it was marbles or baseball cards or pennies. Then at 14, I went to the racetrack for the first time. It was Memorial Day, 1951, Roosevelt Raceway. At that time in my life, I was making 50 cents an hour after school, working about 15-20 hours a week. That night at Roosevelt Raceway, I had my first big win and walked out of the track with $54. Looking back, I think it was that night that changed my life. Even though it was only $54, it was about five weeks' salary to me at that time. That night gave me the belief that I could be a winner from gambling and eventually become a millionaire. I can still recall that high feeling walking out of the racetrack that night. By 17, I was already stealing to support my gambling. It started with stealing comic books to play cards with from the local candy store. Before long, it was stealing money from my family to pay for gambling. By then, I was taking the bus to the racetrack a few nights a week on a regular basis. In those days, they closed the track in winter months in New York. So on weekends, I would take the bus or train to Maryland to gamble. I was betting sporting events and horses with the bookmaker on a daily basis. In those days, each sport had its season. I remember calling the bookmaker one day, and the only thing that was available to gamble was hockey. I'd never seen a hockey game, but I bet on it anyway. It wasn't until months later, when I did see my first hockey game, that I realized that hockey was played on ice. Somewhere between age 17 and 20, I went to the racetrack one night and won... $6,000. Wow. Another big win. That was the equivalent of 2 years' salary. This reinforced my belief that I could be a winner at gambling. By early 20s, I was betting big amounts on lots of games that I didn't really know much about and I probably couldn't name more than a handful of players who played in these events. In some of the college games I bet on, I couldn't name one player or even tell you where the college was located. But I needed to be in action. By then, I was a regular at the old Madison Square Garden every week. I was watching and betting on college and professional basketball on a regular basis. At this point in my life, I was working full-time in the shipping department in the garment center. And every Tuesday when we got paid, there was a regular crap came out in the hallway. Almost every week, I would lose my pay in this game. I began stealing supplies and merchandise on a daily basis to pay for my gambling. By then I had a bank loan and a loan with the finance company. I was also borrowing from co-workers. At 21 I met my future wife. Our first date was to the movies and most of the rest of our dating was at the racetrack. We had a joint checking account saving for our wedding. She would put the money in and I wouldn't. I needed to use my money for gambling. I was still looking for another big win. I thought the perfect place for a honeymoon would be Las Vegas or Puerto Rico, since I knew both places had casinos. My wife-to-be didn't think that was a good idea. I guess she understood enough about my gambling already. At 23, we got married, and I wanted to stop gambling at this point. I thought I could. Within a short time, I was back to gambling. And even though I wanted to stop, I realized today that I couldn't. I needed to gamble like any drug addict needed to stick that needle in their arm, or any alcoholic needed to have that drink. Four weeks after we got married, I went away to the Army Reserves at Fort Dix, New Jersey, for six months. During those six months, I gambled every day, fast and furious, from placing bets by phone with the bookmaker to shooting crap and playing cards every waking minute. When I came home in December of 1961, I owed a lot of money and didn't even have a job. I got a job eventually working in the Garmin Center. In the showroom that I worked, there were a few compulsive gamblers who I quickly got friendly with. They became my buddies. We would play cards during the day and go to the racetrack at night and on weekends together. My wife thought I was at business meetings some of these nights, and all of us would lie for each other. In 1963, my first daughter was born. My wife was in labor 37 hours. During that period, I went to the racetrack twice. When the doctor finally came out and told me that we had a baby, the only question that I really was concerned about was, how much did she weigh? He told me, seven pounds, one ounce. Seven and one. You think the concern should have been, how was my wife or how was the baby? First call I made was to the bookmaker, and I bet 71 on the daily double. Seven pounds, one ounce. The next day when I picked up the newspaper, the daily double hit. And I was convinced that day that God was sending me a message that now I was going to be a winner. One year later, my boss gave me an option to buy 500 shares of stock in the company for $14 a share. Within that year, that stock was worth $38,000. In those days, you could buy a car for $2,000 and a house for $10,000 or less. Within three years, this money would be gone due to my gambling. By now, I was a plant supervisor for a Fortune 500 company. He's a very bright guy. My gambling was already so out of control that I was stealing everything that I could could to stay in action. I set up a room in the factory that we used for playing cards all day long. I was starting to do illegal acts, manipulating stocks in the stock market our home life was deteriorating gambling was more important than anything else that was going on at home I was lying about almost everything and I would come back home and pick up fights so that I could go out to gamble nothing else at that point in my life was more important than gambling not my family or my job gambling came first at this point even though I was doing illegal acts I was still borrowing money from only legal sources my gambling continued to get progressively worse I was now a plan manager supervising 300 or 400 people My boss worked in New York and I was in the factory in New Jersey. Most of the time he didn't know what I was doing. Besides stealing and borrowing money from coworkers, I now had three bank loans and three loans to finance companies. I owned a low shark amount of money equal to one year's salary. I was involved with three bookmakers, both working for them and betting with them. I directed a lot of people who gambled in my company to my bookmaker and got a piece of the action. I even got involved in a numbers operation. Between this and stealing, I was supporting my gambling. There were times I would bet on 40 or 50 games on a weekend and believe I would win them all. One weekend, just before I hit my bottom, I called a bookmaker and took a shot by bending a round robin, which amounted to about two years' annual salary. At that moment, if I lost the bet, there was no way I could pay it. Things were getting so bad, I remember calling a bookmaker one day and being told that if I didn't bring him the money I owed him, he would not take my bet for that night. So, I went home and sold our car to a neighbor. By now, I wasn't going home to pick a fight with my wife. I was doing it over the phone so I wouldn't waste the trip home. Most of the time, I was out gambling, but when I was home, we were constantly fighting. We had sex very rarely. When I won, I was so high, I didn't need it, and if I lost, I didn't want it. But there were times when we had sex, and my wife would say to me, Do you hear a radio? (laughs) Of course, I would tell her she was crazy. But I had a radio under the pillow so I could listen to a game. We were trying to have another child, but couldn't. My wife came to me with the idea of adoption. I didn't like that idea, especially when I was told it would cost money. I needed that money for gambling. After three months of her bothering me, I finally went along with the idea of adoption. As I thought she would be so busy with the two kids, she would leave me alone. I borrowed the money we needed from my boss and relatives. On the day we were bringing our son home on a plane, it was the seventh game of the 1967 World Series. My wife was busy looking at this beautiful new baby. I had no interest in him. I had a large bet on the game. The pilot was announcing the score every 15 minutes or so. I was so upset that we were on this plane. I wished and prayed that the plane would get to the ground so that I could see or hear every minute of this game. In the next few months, the bottom fell out of my world, even though I still had my job and still looked okay. No, there were no track marks on my arm. I wasn't smelling from my gambling. No one could really tell what was going on. I would come home from gambling and see my wife crying all the time, depressed and sick. Our daughter was four years old, and I don't remember her walking or talking. I either wasn't home, or when I was, my head was consumed with the gambling. At this point in my life, I owed 32 people three years annual salary. I had a life insurance policy and constantly thought about killing myself and leaving my wife and two kids that money. I would do anything to keep gambling. As long as I could get my hands on some more money to stay in action, I still thought that the big win was just around the corner. I was trying to find out where I could get drugs to sell and looking around for gas stations to rob. I was asking people about making counterfeit money. I was running out of options my boss came to me one day and told me that a detective was following me that he had a report on my gambling he knew I was betting more money than I earned that he was sure that I was stealing from the company and that if he found out he would have me arrested three hours later I was stealing from the company again on February 2nd 1968 my wife was having a miscarriage and I was taking her to the hospital I was wishing and praying all the way that she would die I thought that would solve all my problems. I wouldn't have to tell her how bad things were. That morning I called my mother to watch my kids. I called my boss and told him I couldn't come to work because my wife was in the hospital. And then I went to the racetrack. After the track, I went to see how my wife was. When I got to the hospital, the doctor told me that my wife was in shock and had almost died. I was so deep into my addiction that I didn't really care about her or the two kids or myself. The only important thing was making a bet. On February 12, 1968, someone suggested I go to Gamblers Anonymous because they could help me. I went because I assumed the help was in the way that they would give me money to pay my debts. I gave them a fake name and a fake phone number. At that point, I did not think I could stop gambling. In fact, I didn't even want to stop gambling. I thought that somehow I could put the money together and gamble again. I went to meetings because I felt that people there cared about me. It was weeks at Gamblers Anonymous before I began to think that maybe I could stop gambling. To my disappointment, they did not give me any money. They told me I needed a second job or maybe a third job. I took two more part-time jobs. Eventually, we had enough money to begin paying off some gambling debts and live a normal life. They told me they could give me some relief if I brought my wife, Sheila. So I did. I did not gamble then for eight weeks. Then it was the start of the baseball season. On April 10th, 1968, opening day, I placed my last bet. I thought that I was the only one living the way I was living and doing the things that I was doing. I found out that I was not alone, that I could stop gambling with the help of other people. I was able to look at myself in the mirror and see what kind of things I had been doing that I thought were perfectly normal. For the first time, I had hope. It's been almost 37 years since I last gambled. Today, I have everything I dreamed about getting from gambling and then some. I have a wonderful family that is still intact and even been blessed with four grandchildren who I love very dearly. In the last 25 years, I've been able to devote my working life to helping others who have this problem and educating people on the disease of compulsive gambling. This has been a dream come true. Uh, There is a video available where he and his wife talk about their marriage, the history of gambling... His recovery in Gamblers Anonymous. And so, my friend, the message is, hey, gambling is around everywhere. None of us are immune to it. None of our children are immune to it. None of our spouses are immune to it. The increase in women gamblers has been frightening in the past few years. In Oregon, there are now more women gamblers than male gamblers. So it is not a a, a gender disease. And again, we have to remember, get over the denial. The problem is there. It's among us. We have to know that the problem exists and be on the alert for it. And if it, we suspect it occurs, the first thing to do is get to the phone and call Gamblers Anonymous or Gamanon and get advice from people who know. I went through medical school for four years. I did not have one lecture on alcoholism, on drug addiction, on gambling, on spouse abuse. I then went to a psychiatric training, excellent training for three years. I did not have one lecture on alcoholism, drug addiction, spouse abuse, or gambling. These things are very often not taught, neither to psychologists or psychiatrists. So your psychiatrist or psychologist may be very capable. But unless he or she has made a specific point of learning about gambling... Uh, They may not know anything about it. And they may treat the person for depression and give them pills. And yes, who wouldn't be depressed if they're $3 million in debt? The people to go to are the people who know about it. And these are the experts at uh, gambling addiction, primarily in Gamblers Anonymous and Gammona. So that's my message for tonight. If I've alerted the public... And if this goes out by video to others, the more the people hear about it, the more chance we have of nipping it in the bud, the more chance we have of saving lives. Uh, Many years ago... uh, When I started talking about alcoholism and drug addiction, people did not want to hear about it. But fortunately, some progress has been made, not enough, but some progress has been made and more people are coming into treatment, their lives being saved before they bring themselves and their family to ruin. And I hope that this talk on gambling by Rabbi Willig and myself will accomplish the same thing. Thank you all for listening.